You're listening to Payments Innovation, a podcast dedicated to helping business leaders navigate today's global digital economy. Looking to learn about the latest innovations within fintech and payments? You've come to the right place. Let's get into the show. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Payments Innovation Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Ernanwine, and I'm joined today by my fellow host, uh, Kara Hayward, and my friend, Shamir Karal from Silla Money. How are you guys doing? I'm doing fine. Uh, thank you for having me, Scott and Kara. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, it's it's very rare that I'm not the host and I get to actually be part of the conversation. So thanks so much for having me too. Yep. So today's a special episode. So we're going to be talking about the fintech market in general, the trends that we're seeing, and it's going to be uh, you know something of a panel discussion with um, the experts here, Kara and Shamir. Um, so just to get things kicked off, so why don't we start with a general question? What do you guys think the biggest trends are in fintech today and how are your companies adapting to the changing dynamics within the market? So biggest trend, I think, in, in fintech uh, broadly defined, and I try to I tend to kind of like include uh, crypto into that as well, uh, is, is, is of growth. And uh, the way I think of it is like, you know, the, the financial services is a sort of a fundamental need of, of humanity and if you look globally the global financial services industry is about 20 trillion uh, in revenue right and this is out of a global gdp of around 100 trillion uh, financial services is one of the largest industries out there right like right up there with like manufacturing and logistics and stuff like that it's kind of one of the building blocks of the economy um, and it's been around for a long time it is still completely dominated by 30 plus thousand banks, wealth managers, financial institutions, and, and traditional companies who were all, most of them were here 30 years ago, right? Um, and, and if you look at the entire fintech industry ecosystem globally, everybody from PayPal to Scylla uh, over the last, whatever, 25 years, combine all of that. And we are maybe a little bit over 1% market share now. Uh, of that 20 trillion. And I have to say that's a lot more PayPal than Scylla. <laughs> uh, and and, uh, and 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 from that perspective, you're like, wow, you, you look at the industry and it is so massive. And yet it's a, you know, it's it's um it's it's barely noticeable in the grand greater scheme of the the huge financial industry and the ecosystem there. Um, but it's been growing rapidly, right? Like it might be whatever, one, two percent now. But uh, as recently as like 10 years ago, it was basically 0%. And I was really like, I don't know how many fintechs were around before 2008, but maybe PayPal was kind of the only big one, right? Um, and so this next decade, I think, is going to be a massive decade of growth. And I mean the 2020s, and we're already two years into the 2020s, right? Um, the I, I feel like even though it's going to be massive growth, it has been massive growth. Uh, it the, the banks are not going away. The traditional FIs are not like, this isn't a tale of like kind of disruption like happened in the advertising industry where, you know, everything changed in a matter of five years or, you know, the Netflix blockbuster. That, this industry is just too large, too massive and too central to everything else to be kind of disrupted in the same way. So FinTech is, in 2030, it's probably going to be, I don't know, 10% of uh, financial services, right? Um, which still means that in this decade, the entire industry is going to grow 10x. <laughs> but 90% is still going to be with those traditional FIs and the overall industry will still grow. You know, the uh, it'll be, I don't know what it will be, maybe 25 trillion by that, right? Um, so the the it, it feels like there's a massive wave of growth happening. It is, and it's going to continue for a while. The second part of it is just that no matter how, rapidly the industry grows, the investor expectations and the public markets can get ahead of that growth. <laughs> you can see this in the dot-com bust, right? Like you see the promise of the, uh, the dot-coms of the late 90s. And today, 22 years later, you're like, yeah, it's all achieved, right? Like there's, there's the, even the ones that failed spectacularly in 01 and 2000, like WebVan, there's like many, many companies that look just like WebVan did 20 years ago, and they are large and some of them are public, right? So the internet did change everything and dot-coms did change everything, 
And yet there was a huge speculative boom in the public markets and then a bust. And then in the next 10 years is where we saw the real transformational change of the internet, right? Uh, I think that's what kind of what's happening in fintech. It's going through its dot-com bust moment where, you know, there was a lot of very high-flying public fintechs, which had huge valuations last year, public and private, really. A lot of those valuations have been cut because the the, the kind of the, the markets have changed. Um, some of those companies will struggle, I'm sure. There's always going to be some failures that happen in this kind of a, uh, a down market, in a bear market or whatever. But the underlying dynamics are just kind of, in my view, unstoppable, right? So there will be the ones, the great companies are going to stay great, um, and the and the ones that survive this will probably grow and scale, and, and in you know a decade from now they will be the uh, the giants. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that, Shamir. I think uh, it's interesting. Even I mean, well, maybe we can jump in at some point to the Scylla story. But I know that with your experience back in 08, trying to build your own neobank, uh, uh, that was such a difficult. There was just such a high barrier to entry, right? And now that you see, I mean, just in the past, I think like year or two, the number of banks that have decided they want to become sponsor banks and work with fintechs and partner with fintechs um, to help them grow in a sustainable way. Because I think that's also the other issue is um, because of all the speculation, people were trying to move really, really, really fast and it didn't necessarily have the oversight. And so I think it's actually a good correction in the sense that um, the things that will be necessary for stability will kind of shine through and you'll see more and more banks getting into the space and, and see more of that partnership where to your point, I don't think the banks are going anywhere. They're actually just getting smarter and figuring out how to do what they do best and then partner with others to um, kind of stay up with the changing times. Right. So um, yeah, no, I love your outlook there. Yeah. And and how do you guys think in the short term then? So I agree with you in the long term. Fintech will always be here. It will, just like the internet, the companies will grow and they will match expectations eventually. In the short term, there was a lot of excitement. If you look at the number of VC deals and companies going public between the last few years, 2021 just stands astronomically compared to the years prior. Um, so obviously there was something disproportionate about the growth uh, lately, but in the short term, then as we go through this correction, what do you think that's going to look like for fintech startups? Are they going to merge with other fintechs um, in order to survive? Are they going to just continue to grow despite the larger economic uh, headwinds? Um, in the short term, what happens to the fintechs now, That especially some that might have raised a lot of capital um, in the last couple of years? I think um, there won't be as many that get a lot of money right out of the bat. I think um, it's going to be really, really important to um, honestly, to bootstrap, right? And like really think through your business model, your business plan, and not just the technology, right? Like really thinking through, okay, um, it's not just about acquiring users anymore. Like what is my path to profitability? Even if it doesn't end up working out, yeah, at least putting thought into that and um, and bootstrapping it as much as you can until you can start to so show that revenue pattern. Um, so I guess like the effect of that really would be maybe not so many new fintechs, but the ones that will make it will be really high quality. Um, and I think will actually, again, be better for the industry long-term because they will be more sustainable. I agree, uh, Kara. And just to to add on to that, right? Like, I think um, twenty twenty one was it was was like a huge spike in everything, and then there was a b bunch of factors, right? Like that the pandemic, the recovery from the pandemic, uh, massive stimulus from the gov governments across the globe, and um, and and inflation wasn't a problem. Uh, all of those things have changed. <laughs> stimulus is gone. <laughs> uh, interest rates are up. Uh, inflation is back, and uh, and and the uh, and the Public markets are always the first ones to react and, and kind of price in the future. Uh, and, and the private markets tend to be, you know, uh, tend to lag it. Um, that said, I feel like, you know, I feel like cycles have sped up uh, dramatically, right? Like, I, I feel like this all happened last century as well, right? Like there was a global pandemic. Um, it was followed by a stop. Uh, stock market boom and then there was a stock market bust a huge one and then there was war in europe uh, it took 
20 years <laughs> for all of that had to happen from like 1919 to 1939. This time around, we seem to have compressed all of that into like two years. Right? Uh, and, and I'm like, um, I, I do feel like cycles have uh, have sped up um, just probably because of more information or, or whatever. Um, I, I, but I kind of, again, agree with you totally. I think it's uh, a lot of like the, the correction that's happening now is really just a return to sort of uh, sanity where people care about metrics like business models, revenue, margins, profitability, uh, which people didn't even necessarily ask for last year <laughs> or, or think about, right? And and you see some of the, the some of the most uh, egregious uh, stuff in the private markets. Uh, I think the public markets. Again, probably because of like you know 2001 and Sarbanes Oxley and everything else, they 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 at least keep a, a semblance of like um, uh, kind of like uh, diligence and and quality to become a public company is not easy. Good companies will actually find this a great moment to succeed and thrive. Um, you'll find that your cost of acquiring new customers comes down a lot uh, because uh, it, again there may be fewer customers to acquire, uh, but there's also the cost to get them will, will come down. And in the broad scheme of things, uh, that underlying sort of uh, one to 10% uh, dynamic is still there. So um, as long as you are well-funded, you keep your head down and keep executing, even as a private company, um, I think you really don't have anything to worry about and um, and, and a glorious future awaits. <laughs> uh, but there are going to be some failures as well. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, within FinTech, you mentioned obviously private companies because they lack the same requirements of due diligence than public companies. And um, they would be the first ones to be shaken out and uh, the funny money um, won't be there uh, for, for some of these more um, unique use cases, shall we say. Uh, but what specific segments within FinTech do you think are going to have the most staying power? Uh, to give Scylla some credit, I like the embedded finance play, and I like companies that are in somewhat generalist in the way that they service other fintechs, and so they're not necessarily beholden to, uh, like you know, if an investor app had, like sees a huge dip in trading, then they might suffer the consequences of that. Um, so, what areas of fintech specifically are you guys the most confident in, um, especially during a economic time that's more certain? Uncertain. Uh, so I, I, I think the kind of like the, um, just broadly companies with uh, revenue, revenue that's growing and good margins uh, and, and uh, the, the good underlying business models, I think they will do fine. Right. I do agree with you. I think the embedded fintech, BAS platform players like Scylla, I think as a class, We'll do fine, um, just because the it's, it's almost a generational change in technology, um, and you you look at you know the the what would you have called a fintech in like 1990, and it would have been companies like you know Pfizer and FIS and Jack Henry um, and even Visa and Mastercard, which were much much earlier stage back then, right? Um, but they were technology players in financial services. Uh, they, we don't think of them as fintech, but that is what they are. They they are behemoths now. And uh, a lot of them have very outdated technology. And so there is this fundamental shift, right? Um, you look at those same business models, and that's what the BAS players, the embedded fintech players also have. It's fundamentally the same business model. It's a different uh, go-to-market strategy, right? It's not about giant sales teams selling to community banks. A lot of it is API first, uh, developer friendly, and all these kind of things that didn't exist 30 years ago. Um, so I think the as, as a class, the, uh, Scylla and companies like Scylla will do fine. Uh, and it's just the, the, the biggest impact of this kind of downturn is probably just a slowdown in our growth rate for who knows how long, right? Two to four quarters maybe. And then eventually, uh, the, the even, uh, even Already for for Scylla, the you know it's it's the bigger companies and the bigger customers who drive more and more of our revenue, and and it just becomes a question of like, hey, do they decide to uh, you know push forward on this project or do they push it off by like two or three quarters? 
ultimately everybody needs to 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 build towards the future and and uh and and if you don't there are long term consequences right um so i think you're right i think that we'll do fine um the uh there are some sectors i worry about more i think consumer sectors uh i think especially lending uh, businesses lending has always been a highly cyclical business right uh, and there's a ton of opportunity there a ton of value that modern technology can bring uh, to customers but uh, reality is also that underlying dynamics are highly cyclical when interest rates go up a lot of lending markets shrink <laughs> interest rates are low there and, and it, so i i worry that uh, a lot of companies in those spaces are just going to struggle with access to capital both lending capital and then operating capital um and then i think uh, b2c is all going to come down to uh, uh kind of your cash on your balance sheet and how strong you are as a business because cost of customer acquisition as everybody pulls back on marketing dollars and you'll find your ability to acquire new customers is is um you know is is going up but the question is can you actually spend the money and grab those new customers and keep and keep your growth rate high and then go out and raise more funding right and so that things are there'll be some separation there and then generally speaking like payment pro- uh, processors b2b players and um that that whole sector is still very very early stage and there's a tons of potential there and and international too right like this year the us growth has not been i mean it's been negative in real terms i will see whether whether the us goes into recession or not i don't know china's growth is slowing india on the other hand is growing like close to 7% this year right uh, probably the fastest growing large economy this year will be india a um, lot of african places or countries are growing rapidly but then you also have places which have their own individual problems right whether it's like sri lanka or some other place so internationally it's also a mixed picture i think some economies and companies and in those places will do great others may not yeah i think that that's spot on shamir i think a lot of people don't realize i think how we're just um scratching the surface in the b2b innovation space like i think to your point consumer um uh, with the you know folks like chime and and borrow and others you know it's it's tough to compete in that space and and even get market share and and it costs a lot to do so and it, it's again riskier from the loan perspective but b2b i mean it's still amazing to me some of the business processes that are still so archaic that there's so much room for innovation and growth there um across you know traditional small businesses tech startups ecom i mean there's a million different areas that there's still a lot of uh room so i think that's what i'm very bullish about is is uh continued innovation in that space and specific to the embedded finance light right like yes there are a lot of good b2b like neo banks out there and and i think the ones that are have already established dominance will continue to grow but i think it's more of those like use cases that are embedded into non financial apps or business processes that traditionally didn't see payments integrated right and so that to me i think is is really interesting um and and to your point about international you know i think it's so it's so correct in terms of um a lot of the growth that's happening i think the challenges that we see is uh, again the the oversight right uh, and the the compliance cultures the ability to understand the risk that comes into play in certain different um jurisdictions and and other you know geopolitical type things but the good news is like there's more information out there than ever about how to tackle that um there's a lot of partners out there that can can be really helpful to help navigate so um i do see that you know for those that are serious about capturing some of that growth um people can can definitely go uh, unpack that so yeah i agree with everything that you guys said um i think b2c is already seen some disruption in terms of the market conditions like i think i think it was better.com where they had to lay off like 1000 people over zoom and that was you know that made the news um and uh they were a mortgage company and, and that was direct result of the rising rates and so um i think that the embedded b2b players are have more staying power for for those kinds of reasons and um I also agree with the international growth. I think from my own experience at Currency Cloud, uh we obviously are a company that enables other companies to expand internationally and uh we've seen a lot of use cases come in from um developing regions and and places where the financial infrastructure 
is uh, still needs a lot of improvement. Like in, in Africa, you mentioned, there's a ton of innovation going on. And I think that is a microcosm for the larger industry, even even within like mature economies like the U.S. Uh, because of the regulations and the infrastructure that exists, it is difficult to drive innovation at the same pace as other industries. So there's always going to be areas for uh, fintechs to come in and help um, move that process along and take advantage of it. Um, I do want to ask you a bit about Scylla. And so... Um, you said, uh, Kara mentioned that you previously tried to start a neobank during um, the last recession. And I was interested to, to learn more about what lessons you learned that time and then um, what eventually led you to create Scylla. And for those who might not be familiar listening, um, what is Scylla? What do you guys do? And, and what are you guys most excited about right now about it? Totally. Um, so I did build and launch a, a neobank. I was the co-founder of Simple, which may have been the first neobank um, anywhere. Uh, and that was a journey that started in 09. And it took us three years just to build and launch and, and get to our first customers, right? Uh, because nobody had done anything like it before. So the word neobank didn't exist, by the way. Uh, we just called it a bank. <laughs> and uh, and the the kind of everything in terms of like partnership structure, in terms of FBO accounts, in terms of technology, all of that stuff we had to figure out. Uh, and a lot of what we did there has now kind of become standardized in the industry and, and a lot of other neobanks and, and fintechs in general operate that way. Uh, but it was really innovated by Simple and Bancorp Bank, our bank partner back then. Um, Simple itself was acquired by BBVA, which is a large Spanish bank. Um, and when I was at BBVA, I heard about this idea uh, of building an API platform, but super excited about it. Uh, and I was like, yes, please, the world needs API platforms in banking. If this had existed, you know, Josh and I wouldn't have spent three years launching Simple. Uh, we could have done it in a year. And then who knows <laughs> uh, where, you know, where we would be, right? Um, so I kind of ended up spending a couple of years at BBVA building API platforms for them, one in Europe and one in the US and built and launched them and even got some customers, but they could never grow them the way that I wanted to. Um, and eventually ended up uh, leaving BBVA in 2017, thought for, about things for a while and decided I still wanted to solve this problem. I just didn't want to do it at a large bank. Um, and the problem that I fundamentally wanted to solve was that it's just too hard to program with money. On the internet, you can wake up and program with voice over IP, HTML, you know, uh, TCP IP, any internet protocol, it's quick, it's easy takes, you know, whatever, 10, 15 minutes, right? The moment you come to money, and money is just a specialized type of messaging protocol at, at, a, at a computer science level, uh, but it is very, very hard for developers to program with money. Um, and that's really what, uh, that's that's really the problem that we solve at, uh, at Scylla. Uh, the core of our product is a restore HTTP API platform that does, um, digital, uh, you know, end user onboarding uh, in a compliant fashion. So KYC, KYB, OFAC checks, all of that, um, digital wallets, virtual bank accounts, ACH payments, and wires, right? Uh, and and the, the area that we specialize in is really complex regulated funds flows, uh, which are driven heavily by ACH. Uh, that tends to be our sweet spot. Um, we, we do want to be international someday, but at the moment, we're you know, still a Series A company uh, based here in the U.S. and um, really like supporting our customers in building those. Uh, you know, then we have customers who go everywhere from like early stage fintech to public companies, even one government agency actually. <laughs> uh, but they're all looking to process payments for uh, a regulated funds flow, and that's what we enable for them. Yeah, that's a it's a powerful thing, and it's needed in the market. Um, and as you have you seen yourself, um, so there's a lot of like this. This seems to be a growing segment within the industry because people like you have tried to start their own fintechs, figured out what the areas uh, that need fixing for for people trying to launch their own. Um, and so now we're seeing a bunch of different banking as a service companies crop up. Um, for you, what do you guys think is your differentiator in the market? There's, there's uh, definitely quite a few out there now. Um, and, and I think the, the thing that sets us apart is, is a few different things. Uh, one, we've always been 
uh, crypto friendly uh, from the start. Uh, we we really got started in the last crypto winter, um, and uh, we serve a bunch of crypto companies, um, some large ones actually, and uh, and we have our own infrastructure on Ethereum. So if you want to use uh, smart contracts, you want to do atomic swaps, all of that, we can support that. And we do for some customers. Uh, a lot of customers don't, and they just run on our private ledger, right? Uh, so that sort of flexibility, both on and off chain is, is, uh, uh, is one thing that differentiates us. But the ability to understand crypto and serve the needs of crypto customers is, is I think, is, is the bigger thing. Um, we also tend to be uh, quite highly specialized in ACH payments. Um, we have a bunch of tools on not just processing ACH payments and, you know, holding the funds, transferring them and getting them where they need to go, but also around uh, around things like return management, right? What the, 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 the so which, I think that's not obvious always obvious to everybody who's uh, who's getting into the payments business is that the, the the hard work is never in processing the payment. It's in processing the payments that fail. Uh, and then you're like, why do payments fail? I'm like, oh, that's where you, <laughs> they're asking the right questions now. It's and like, why is the sky blue? Yeah. So many different reasons and so many different ways. And then how do you deal with that? And what is the right thing to do in each situation? Um, that's a lot of the kind of the, the work in that we've put into the platform and supporting our customers is helping them manage through that sort of stuff. Um, and then also helping them manage uh, ACH fraud. And it's always like, you know, what does everybody want, right? Like they want their money instantaneously uh, and they want it risk-free. And it's like, well, that's great. But ACH, you typically see um, three-day settlement times and 60-day risk windows uh, rather than, you know, three seconds, right? <laughs> um, and, and there's so many different ways in which ACH payments can fail because it's, it's a 50-year-old payment system. At the same time, it's a 74 trillion volume payment system. So it's ACH in the US is 10 times as much uh, volume as cards is, for example. Um, so it's, uh, it's it, well, it's heavily needed. It's an area that historically hasn't seen that much innovation at all. Um, and so those are the two things kind of that really set us apart is our crypto focus and uh, and ability, capabilities there, as well as our depth of capability on the ACH side. On that note, Shmir, so one thing that comes up a lot is um, sort of like the, the global movement towards real-time payments, right? And, um, and I think the, you know, there's a lot of schools of thought about like, there, a lot of the reason there's not as much card adoption is is sometimes because of the fees in, involved, right? Or, mm -hmm. you know, will the place that you're trying to pay actually accept cards, right? There's a million different reasons and why ACH, I think, um, is having its heyday and continues to, despite some of the frustrations that people have with the speed and other things. Um, maybe we could talk a little bit about real-time payments because I know, again, with your with your focus on crypto, um, you know, in our focus internationally where we see a lot of different governments that are mandating real-time payments, what, do you have an opinion on like what we could expect to see in the U.S. in the future around that? Do you think there will be, yeah, I, I, obviously we have, um, you know, FedNow and RTP, but those, I think they have their drawbacks as well. So it'll be interesting to see some of the adoption of that. So anyway, I'll stop there, but. Yeah, no, that is a very, very interesting topic and one that's uh, very near and dear to my heart. I was actually on the Federal Reserve's task force uh, back in whatever, 15, I think, uh, which eventually led to the FedNow effort. I was on it for a year, then had to had to get off it when I took my job at BBVA. Um, but uh, the kind of, I, there is a global movement towards real-time payment systems, and those are being built in a lot of countries. Um, and in fact, I would say the kind of the the, the most advanced uh, system is actually what India has in place now, right? And there's a few different models of of how this transition is has happening. I think everybody can understand that the world of the future will be highly mobile. It'll involve people, you know, with all their information all their control and everything at their fingertips, usually through a mobile phone. I don't know, maybe it's something embedded into their brain at some point, but it, it, it is, it's, it's not going to involve people doing 90% of their transactions in a branch or in, in a, over the phone, the way they did it in the nineties. Right? And I think that's, that's pretty clear to everybody. Uh, which underlying ecosystem model 
and then payment system uh, structure and uh, uh, will will support that is i think very open to question and it's actually going to be different by geography um, so china has this model where uh, you know uh, basically like a couple of large super apps wepay and alipay kind of control almost the entire uh, retail payment system and a lot of the, uh, the, the more and more of the business payment system right so if you're in china you kind of have to be on wepay otherwise it rapidly becomes questionable if you can even function <laughs> you can't pay for anything anymore um in uh india and and that's a that works if you're on wepay you just use your phone it, it's great the customer experience uh, is, is amazing but it is all controlled within one company and one e kind of walled garden ecosystem right um india went a very different way with upi the unified payments um uh, system which uh has since it launched in 2016, it's been the fastest growing payment system in the history of mankind. And it means that in India now, you can download an app from anybody, but say, let's say Google, um, and connect it to your bank account held at any bank, uh, and then send it to your friend who has a different app, which is connected to a different bank account. And all of this is 24 7, 365. And you can swap your bank account and your app every single day if you want. <laughs> Nobody does that. <laughs> but the ecosystem is completely designed to enable full interoperability and full flexibility to the end uh, user, right? Um, and it's like a massive growth at rock bottom prices. And I think that's kind of the, the Indian model. Um, and then there's, I, I don't know if there is a US model yet. <laughs> I think the US is still trying to figure out what its model is. Uh, but what a lot of the European um, uh, countries and Europe has moved towards is the single euro payment area, SEPA payment system. Um, and the UK also has its own uh, real-time payment system, right? Uh, it looks like fed now is basically uh, modeled on those so you know fed now looks like it's going to be a real-time payment system push only based on iso 20 or 22 looks like it's going to launch at the end of 2023 is the last i heard about it um, and i think it brings the us up once it launches and gets ubiquity which will take a few years right um, so let's say 2025 the us should be up to the state of the art as of 2008. Um, so instead of being sort of 30 years behind the rest of the world, we'll only be maybe 15 years behind at that point. Um, so <laughs> uh, I, I, stats, you can see right? I have strong <laughs> You can see I'm, I have strong viewpoints on this. Uh, and uh, and I think RTP and the the the, the private sector alternative to Fed now is the clearinghouses RTP payment system. Um, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, by the end of this decade, we end up in a situation where there's both FedNow and RTP, one operated by the clearinghouse, one operated by the Federal Reserve, and they work interoperably. Interoperab uh, interoperably. Um, they both use ISO 20 or 22, so it's not too hard to make that work. Uh, and that's analogous to how ACH works right now. ACH has two major operators, the Federal Reserve and the Clearinghouse subsidiary. Actually, the Clearinghouse subsidiary does more ACH than the Fed actually does, but you don't know and you don't care because it's completely interoperable. Um, and uh, I think that's what we are going to end up with. The issues there is that uh, it's still very much designed as an account-to-account -account, uh, payment system. It doesn't have any concept of like end-user authorization, end-user uh, control over money or data built into it, right? Um, so it's really hard to implement full payments on top of that uh, system. Uh, Europe has a model with SEPA direct debits, which they have rolled out and is beginning to take off, beginning to work, I'll say, uh, in the last two years. Um, I, I, there is something called request to pay, which the clearinghouse is trialing on RTP. Um, I, I I, I think it's like, you know, we're literally talking handfuls of transactions a week. Uh, Fed now hasn't even explained how they're going to make it work. Um, and so I still, I think even by the end of this decade in 2030, we still won't have a real-time pull payments capability. Maybe we'll have a real-time push payments capability that will cover 90% of bank accounts. 
That's interesting too, because I would say in the U.S., people all have an appetite and expectation for poll, right? I think like if you look at ACH, I think a lot of um, the experiences that consumers are uh, having are are around ACH poll. (laughs) Um, So it will be interesting to see like if that, uh, hopefully that demand just forces us to get better, right? But I would love to see that, Kara, but I'm like, you know, I, I feel like it is this it's like this thing I like to say, which is like old payment systems never die. Yes. Uh, they just become the settlement layer for the next payment system after them. <laughs> uh, I feel like, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if ACH is still doing tens of trillions of dollars uh, into the 2040s, uh, 2040s, maybe the 2050s, right? Um, it's, it's, it's still growing. Um, Five plus percent a year, uh, so growing faster than U.S. GDP, and it's it is a behemoth. And I don't see uh, RTP will hopefully RTP and Fed now together. I hope will replace more and more of uh, ACH push over the next five, seven years, eight years. But on the pull side, I'm like I don't even see the beginnings of a workable system. <laughs> and these things take like half a decade to a decade to build and roll out. So even in 2030, I think ACH pull will be the primary pull mechanism out of U.S. bank accounts. Yeah, uh, I makes sense. <laughs> it's, it's interesting, right? But it is what it is. Yeah. Now I'm now I'm channeling my frustration here. Yeah, I, think I love it though. Do so I, much we, more we, and so much better. But you know, I don't get to make those decisions. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's hard, right? And not to get into the depths of ACH poll. We'll we'll move on here. <laughs> but like, you know, the, the five more minutes, Kara, and we'll be discussing yeah. return codes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> No, but I mean, like, really, because I think that a lot of folks like Scylla and others have have been able to mitigate so much of the risk in terms of ACH. But at the end of the day, the more that you like there's there's technical ways to do it. But a lot of it, too, is just like it's kind of become sort of like like a credit type thing. Right. Like, what's the what's what's the likelihood that this is going to happen if we're underwriting that risk? you have to build that into the cost. And then it's like, and then all of a sudden you're like back to square one where you're like, well, now it's really not as as cheap as, you know, like going through cards or or another method. So it is, it's a bit of a catch 22, but I think that that will continue to improve as well in terms of being able to mitigate that risk to almost a cost that, that would bring it back to the original ACH. So yeah, I think that it's like sort of a, a race in terms of like, building pull into the the newer payment rails versus like just continuing to iterate upon ACH and, and offering it in a ubiquitous way. So, um, but I can't wait to see what you guys continue to build around that. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. We, we do a lot of stuff on that on top of ACH already. Uh, I don't want to pick up to plug to Scylla too much, but we have two products, instant ACH and instant settlement, which address this. Uh, both of them give our customers' instant funds availability. But the question is, do you want instant funds availability with us guaranteeing the payment or with without the guarantee, right? And obviously, the guarantee is a lot more expensive. Without the guarantee, you get instant funds availability, but you still have the risk of a return. And it's really what your business is, what your use case is that you can kind of, uh, you know, pick, pick which one makes more sense for you as a customer. Uh, we continue to work on those. And this is, you know, there's so much we have learned in the last two, two and a half years of business that are now going into the next versions of those products. Because especially when you're dealing with anti-fraud technology, it's a constant arms race, right? Like there's new ways of doing fraud and new fraud vectors, especially I, I think like um, in, in crypto and in e-commerce online is where you see the most kind of like uh, uh, the, the most direct uh, fraud uh, and, and and the most innovative fraudsters. Um, so we continue to see that and we continue to evolve the product and, and build more capabilities to support customers. Yeah, I was going to ask you guys, because regardless of whether or not the U.S. figures out how to create a real-time payments network to keep up with the consumer demand, fintechs like yourselves are going to fill that gap themselves and take on the risk and um, build on top of what's already there. But uh, so what is the impact to the consumer for us to be lagging behind the rest of the world in terms of real-time payments? Is it just that we're still going to have real-time payments? It's just going to be not filled through uh, the Fed or you know uh, the clearinghouse. It's going to be filled by other companies. And then those are the ones that are going to shoulder the burden for our lack of innovation or the consumer just going to be 
waiting for their payments to come in a little bit longer than everybody else? The real answer is is a little bit of both, right? I think uh, with Fed now, the U.S. at least at the uh, at kind of the the federal government level has basically placed its bets on on how it's going to try and drive this uh, for the next probably for till at least like twenty thirty, right? Um, so we, we we're not there's no point in waiting around for a government solution. I'm not sure that's ever been the way the U.S. operated, but uh, the, the government solution, you know what it's going to be. The question is, uh, what can the private sector do? And I think that's historically been the strength of the U.S. is that that private sector-driven innovation uh, that, that's that's built the U.S. into the powerhouse that it is. Um, and I, so I think there'll be, you know, obviously solutions like Scylla, which are already in the marketplace and customers are using, will continue to grow and there'll probably be more. Um, and and uh, that will be one of the, the ways to address this. But what it, the true problem for customers is the kind of the, the lack of uh, interoperability, right? So um, if you're in China, you don't have to worry about interoperability because it's going to go out on a limb and say everybody in China is on WePay. So what's the problem? Everybody's using the same platform. And if you're in India, interoperability is built in. I don't need to ask you which uh, of like 200 different UPI apps you use because I know you just tell me your UPI ID and I'll send you money and you'll get it in five seconds. Doesn't matter which app it shows up, <laughs> right? Um, so that's the uh, that's the Indian system. Here in the US, there have already been a couple of like, you know, there's Venmo, uh, there's PayPal, uh, and PayPal of course owns Venmo, uh, and then and there's Cash App, right? Uh, and they they all have tens of millions of users. Um, but if you have money in a Cash App wallet or account, and you want to send it to Venmo, you have to put it back into your bank account, go over to your Venmo app, pull it into a Venmo uh, wallet or whatever, and then send it to somebody else. And some of those steps may be fast, but they're not really fast enough to make that whole uh, thing uh, real time, right? Um, now, the, the, a lot of the apps are building innovative capabilities either on their own or working with companies like Sira to make those uh, automatically faster and better experiences. And, and I think that will continue. Um, and so, but but the, the interoperability will, will not happen absent the, 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 this is, it's, that's the beauty of ACH. That's the beauty of cards is that ACH works on every single bank account in the U S doesn't matter which bank uh, and cards, you know, you, you have a card number, it's it's one of the majors and it's accepted by everybody, right? So that that's the kind of the, the thing that's uh, really problematic. And the problem becomes as you move towards larger transactions, right? There's paying whatever 3% to process a card transaction on a $1,500 purchase is fine. Nobody wants to pay that on a $50,000 uh, business payment or you don't want to be paying 3% of your payroll every uh, two weeks, right? And those are the use cases. I mean, the millions of dollars is all about wires. That's fine. The $1,500 retail transactions is all cards. It's in between that is where ACH shines, but also where it's very outdated. Right. Um, so I think, you know, I'm, I'm glad we had that topic because this is truly probably the most payments innovation focused payments innovation podcast that I've, that I've been a part of. So proud of that. Um, shifting gears a little bit, I think this will most likely be our last topic. I wanted to touch on crypto. And as a segue, you guys have Silicoin, um, which, as you said, allows for uh, more easily, your customers to more easily transact um, between um, different blockchain networks. You guys are built on Ethereum, so they can exchange value from different cryptocurrencies more easily through, uh, through you guys. Um, what other ways does USDCs end up helping us in, in fintech and, and in payments? Do they play a role in, in, in speeding up payments in our, in, our, uh, in our financial ecosystem? And uh, what do you think of the regulations that are speculated to come down on these USDCs? So stable coins in general, um, I think, have tons of potential, which they have only begun to achieve in in and then in that whole the whole space is, is like super nascent. I mean, the thing about crypto is that it's always as an entire ecosystem, it's always been highly speculative. Uh, but and and so you tend to see these cycles of boom and bust, right? So fintech maybe going through is is going through a bust right now, and it's really the first time uh, in the last like 
whatever 12 14 years uh there may have been a fintech bust in 2008 but the sector was practically non existent so nobody noticed uh now it's a big enough sector that the bust is quite noticeable and uh, but, but crypto has gone through like four busts or whatever in the last <laughs> 10 years <laughs> since you know since bitcoin came around right um so this is almost par for the course is speculative frenzy then a bust and then a period of building towards another speculative frenzy um and i think in the last cycle the the emergence of like stable coins and uh and i think also nfts um uh, has been those things that i think will stick around um stable coins i feel uh i don't know who said it maybe was it kissinger or somebody who said that like the the dollar is our currency but it's your problem um the there's the, like you can go to random corners of the world italy or india or wherever and and try to pay people in like you know uh, mexican pesos or british pounds and they look at you and be like no you take a dollar out a lot of people will accept dollars even when it's not the local currency because people know what a dollar is worth right um and and so you have entire businesses in places like vietnam and and asia and africa uh who invoice 90% of their products that they sell in dollars and 60% of the products they buy their uh, cost of goods is also invoiced in dollars because it's all international and yet nobody in that business has seen a dollar in their life <laughs> uh and and so the the kind of the, the the dollar is intrinsic to the global economy but nobody who is not an american has an easy way of holding dollars right and if you're like hey i got paid $5000 for this invoice and i know i'm going to have to pay 800 bucks next week for this other cost i just want to hold these 5000 or 800 of these 5000 and maybe the rest i'll convert and i'll pay myself and go have dinner whatever but there's there's no way you get paid in local currency and then converting it back out there's so many problems around that um if everybody in the world could just hold dollars easily the entire kind of global kind of manufacturing and logistics and supply chain system would work so much faster uh and i think that's one of the most promising parts of uh, stable coins is that it's useful for americans i mean if you're buying stuff and if you're especially if you're buying crypto and trading crypto it's um it's useful to hold some stable coin in the us but you know whatever stable coin you hold as long as it's a good one um and fully reserved one uh it it's really no different than holding money in a bank account which you obviously can in the us outside the us that holding money in a bank account in dollars doesn't exist so stable coins become the only way of holding dollars and managing that hugely useful i think the whole crypto speculative thing is just the start of the it, it most of the real value is in global small businesses medium businesses the largest guys can go sign a deal with somebody to manage their you know huge um you know the dollar exposures and and have goldman sachs hedge it for them and all of that it's the small to mid sized businesses that really struggle so i'm a big fan of stable coins um and i think uh this is one of the crypto innovations that will actually survive has to go through its whole period of bust and and and, and let a lot of the uh you know the froth out of the ecosystem but it will survive and truly transform uh the world probably in a decade's time Yeah. I mean, yeah, right. If you look at the um all of the large banks, all I mean, the networks themselves, they all have like as all the speculative stuff was happening and all the noise was out there, every single one of them has a very serious crypto strategy. And and yes, to your point, I think it will take time, but um it, it's it's obviously not clear exactly what that's all going to look like yet, but but people are investing big money in having real use cases outside of speculation. So, um I'm excited about it too. I think uh especially i mean speaking from currency cloud side so that's one of our value props actually is providing multi currency wallets to folks around the world that can then provide that to end small businesses or consumers the problem is again is <laughs> navigating every single country's infrastructure regularly go you know goes on and on and on whereas stable coins could could greatly simplify that so um it's it's definitely interesting and um it would be nice to see the ability to kind of adopt that that globally so you know, you said it kara i mean you just look at the the whole system of nostro vostro accounts oh. and swift messaging and and settlement and all of that then add the regulation on top of it and it's just 
so nightmarishly complex. And that's why companies like Currency Cloud are so hugely valuable to their customers because you solve a lot of that complexity. Uh, but stablecoins offer the promise, not yet realized, but the promise of making it you know, vastly easier at an ecosystem level. So I, I think we're, we're coming up on time here. And I, I, I think it's a great place to end on a Currency Cloud plug. Um, but I agree, with what you, yeah, I agree with what you guys are saying. A lot of people thought that Bitcoin or can still do think that Bitcoin is going to be one of those international currencies and mediums of exchange, but we already have that in USD. So if we can just improve how USD is exchanged in many ways, that problem's solved. Um, and I know, mean, before we... Bitcoin is, is the best analogy for Bitcoin is digital gold. Um, and, and real gold is certainly a valuable traded asset, which has been used historically for uh, payments, isn't used much for payments anymore, but it's still quite valuable. I can totally see Bitcoin becoming digital gold and and in in you know taking over more of the that, but the 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 market for digital gold is a minute speck on the market for digital dollars. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, so before we head out, Shamir, is there any uh, is there anything that you wanted to plug? Any parting thoughts? And where can people find out more information on yourself and about Silla if they if they were to? Uh, I think the. Uh, the only thing I'll uh, I'll have to say is that you know this is this is uh, a down market, right? And uh, that tends to get a lot of people down. <laughs> uh, whether you, and and the historically the best time to start a company or 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 do anything innovative is is actually in this moment uh, because or in these sorts of moments because. Uh, the, the, there isn't necessarily the same ease of access to capital. So you won't necessarily have VCs throwing money at you uh, like may have been the case a year ago, but you will find that everything else is easier, <laughs> whether it's finding customers, finding employees, uh, building in, uh, you know, building steadily, right? So uh, don't be disheartened by market dynamics. Uh, market dynamics are just uh, fleeting. Uh, good businesses are forever. And the best place to find out more about uh, Scylla is on our website, uh, www.scyllamoney.com, S-I-L-A-M-O-N-E-Y.com. Um, and you can check us out on Twitter as well. And you can check me out on Twitter as well. I'm fairly active, uh, Shamir underscore K, um, and at the rate Scylla Money. So any of those uh, is, is a good way to connect with us. Well, this has been fun, Shamir. I always love our chats. Um, thanks, Scott, so much for, for hosting both of us. Same here. Thank you, guys. Yep. Awesome. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. Really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. You've been listening to the Payments Innovation Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe now on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Until next time. <laughs>